Good morning, everybody, on this Lord's Day. Apologize for the rain. It's my fault. I washed my car yesterday. <laughs> knew, knew it would happen. I wanted to wax it. I ran out. I didn't have wax at all. And <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's quite a thing to stand in a pulpit and preach. If you can imagine, and um, John and, and Patrick and Rachel can perhaps most empathize with this, but the first time I preached in this pulpit after finishing seminary, I'm up here getting ready, and who comes in the door but the president of my seminary, Dr. Pete Lilbeck. And now this morning, I'm going to be preaching in front of the Reverend Dr. Anderson. So I'm going to have to step it up here. (laughs) If you would, open your uh, Bibles to Colossians, that little letter of Paul to the church at Colossae. And we're going to be examining uh, part of the first chapter in just a moment. Among the most important tasks, I think we would all agree on, one of the basic tenets of living is that of determining what is real and what is counterfeit. Is what I'm reading or what I'm hearing or the person in front of me authentic or a counterfeit or a deception? And this morning we're going to look at that very issue through biblical lenses to answer the question, who is this man Jesus? A question that continues to be asked in our culture and from the time he was incarnate. And the ancillary question behind it, does it or how does it matter to me? So like the church at Colossae, there are many in our culture, many in churches around the world who want to define the answer to those questions for us. Colossians 1, 15, 23 is Paul's defense, if you will, of who Jesus really is. And most important, he presses home the point that this is the preeminent one. This is the promised one. So by the end of our time together this morning, we're going to discover something that I hope you agree will change all of those whose heart leans toward Christ, as well as pressing home the very reason that everyone who claims the title believer in Christ must know the Scriptures. Notably, we have been warned many times that counterfeits and deceivers will come trying to entice believers to other ways of thinking, and believing. In Matthew 7:15 we read, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." In Acts 20:29, 20, Luke writes, "I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. Therefore, be alert. Are we not seeing this in our culture? So let us, with alertness, 
understand what God has to say. And so we will start, as we must always, with the truth of God's word in Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This is the very word of God, eternal and unchangeable, that you may understand and by his grace is preached to you today. God of truth, of light, of all creation, hear our prayers, Lord, for illumination and understanding of your word given to us, that we might abide in it, dwell in it, savor it and allow it. And it alone to guide our lives, our words, our deeds, our desires, even our thinking. Lord, cause us to see you afresh and gasp. My Lord and my Savior. As your truth overcomes our rebellion and suppression of the truth of your supremacy. For it is in your name and yours alone that we pray. Before we examine the details in this passage, I want to make one clear and compelling background point first. There is truth. There is truth. In fact, there is absolute truth. Something hotly contested in our culture. The truth about God and His Word is that it is truthful. It's authoritative. It's powerful. It's determinative. It's perfect. And it's undefiled. Nothing else of anything we know is like this. Dr. Stephen Lawson notes, and I'm going to paraphrase here, this. Everything God calls right is right. And everything he calls wrong is wrong. Now and forevermore, without condition, without change, and despite changes in human understanding and culture. The point is that everything outside of God's truth is an error. 
The truth divides. It either sanctifies us or damns us if we reject it. There's no running away from this singular, eternal truth. The Bible is the complete, truthful word of God, transmitted to us through the inspired writing of God's prophets and apostles. It's ultimately a linear, unlike other faiths, a linear story of redemptive history, of how God created, called, and saved the people for himself, known to us through Scripture. The church recognizes this absolute and divine authority of Scripture. We are to obey and believe Scripture as God's word. Further, we know Scripture to be inerrant, clear, sufficient, and necessary for us to know God's will as he has chosen to reveal it to us. Another way of saying it is, there is nothing God requires us to believe that is not here in his word. And scripture contains everything we need to know regarding salvation. The point is this. We must know truth. We must use truth. We must act in truth as God has revealed it to us. Biblical Christianity and the Bible that describes true faith for us is first and foremost focused on the truth of who the triune God is. And as such, the truth makes demands on us. And it's this facet that I, I, I think we probably all see that is rejected in our culture. As sinners, we want to comfortably redefine truth in our image, not his. But it doesn't work that way, as everyone outside of the faith eventually discovers. And let me press the point even more acutely, regardless of whether we agree with it, regardless of whether social influencers demean it, and whether we think it's fair or unfair, or whether the government or an employer thinks so or not, nor under, nor under any condition that man's mind dreams up, God's word is absolute truth. Period. Hard stop. If we grasp that, if we bury that truth in our hearts and minds, we will be on mission. Nowhere is the topic of truth more critical than in understanding who Jesus really is. As I say, something men have argued about since his incarnation. But to know anything with absolute truth, one must know what truth really is and what counterfeit is. From the time of Christ's birth all the way to today, there are those who seek to deny or redefine Christ, to destroy faith, faith, to cause division within churches. For this reason, throughout the entire Bible, people are warned about deceivers and false prophets. Look at Ezekiel 13, Matthew 24, 2 Peter 3, who speak falsehood but masquerade as God's prophets and servants. They've learned the art, if you will, of camouflage 
They come dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves, Matthew says in chapter 7. They secretly introduce destructive heresies and bring the way of truth into disrepute and exploit, Peter says, with fabricated stories. They mix nuggets of truth with lies and man-made ideas, all the while trying to sound genuine and godly. In reality, as Jude records in, uh, it's redundant to say one, but in one seventeen, they follow their own ungodly desires. And they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. So how can we distinguish then between what's authentic and genuine and counterfeit, between shepherd and wolf, ultimately between truth and untruth? Remember that Satan himself masquerades as what? Angel of light. And his fellow deceivers, 2 Corinthians 11, masquerade as servants of righteousness. That's why so many are deceived or confused or unsure. This is why we must know Scripture and the truths of Scripture. To believe believers who can correctly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy, and who are diligent in reading and studying Scripture and equipped to identify false prophets because they're able to measure any teaching they hear against what Scripture says. Believers who can answer the question, did God really say? Because we know Scripture. I don't really carry cash. My wife gives me usually $20 at a time. And I give that away to other people. So I never have any money. But have you ever had a $100 bill and go to the grocery store? What does what the, the woman there do? She holds it up to look at it. Sometimes she holds a real one next to it. How can you identify a counterfeit $100 bill if you don't know what the genuine thing looks like? Just a very brief sampling of Scripture because I really want to press this platform point home. Second Peter 2 False prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will bring destructive heresies, even denying the Master. Matthew 24.11 Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. 1 Peter 5 Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking to devour. 1 John 4 Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. 2 John 1, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist, he says. So we've established now two key anchor points as we will now dig in and interpret our scripture today. One, God's word that is scripture, is absolute trust, uh, truth, that we can trust. Number two, we must read and know scripture, that is know the truth, so that we can identify what is counterfeit and who Christ truly is. So now, with those guard posts in, point, in place, let's consider and understand our passage. Now, background. 
Paul is writing to the church at Colossae to counter heresies and myths, deceivers who have crept into the church, especially that of appealing to angels rather than to Christ and denying that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. And this passage, 1, 15 to 23, is, is, as you'll see, sweeping in its grandeur. It's proclaiming the truth of all truths and in providing a bright line, dividing truth from untruth. In fact, I, I, I devised this sentence about it, which sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's a singularity that changes everything and results in a true binary truth and that which is not truth. As we'll see, there's no almost, there's no somewhat, there's no halfway point that Paul lets creep into this. And he's going to make the clear and compelling declaration that Jesus Christ is preeminent and supreme from all time, for all time. And we're going to go now word by word, phrase by phrase. So starting with verse 15. And don't worry, while we start slow, we'll, we'll get there. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So in saying Jesus is the image of God, we have to remember Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four. What is God? God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, justice, holiness, goodness, and truth. That's an absolute. Paul's making the point that this man they see in front of them, this man, Jesus, turns out is the very image of God in the sense that he is the exact likeness of God. And the nature and being of God is perfectly revealed in him. That Jesus is literally, as Kent Hughes says, Literally the exegesis of God. I love that. Christ is literally the exegesis of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the very face of Christ. Second, in saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation... Don't be confused here, because it, it does confuse people. God is not a created being. Neither is Jesus. The meaning, as Curtis Vaughn exposits it, is that Christ is before all creation and time, and also over it in rank and dignity. He is therefore Lord over all of God's creation. Well, how does God, or how does Christ have such dominion? Answer, he made it all. Look at verse 16 and 17. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things adhere, hold together. Creation is through Christ in the sense that he was the mediating agent through whom creation actually came into being. And Paul uses a word here that means all, everything, whether the heavens, the invisible, the thrones, the rulers, 
all things. Further, everything works, that is, holds together, as Paul puts it, only because of and through him. He's the unifying principle, or as one commentator called it, the cosmic glue through which everything literally holds together. One theologian put it this way, he's the principle of cohesion who makes the universe a cosmos instead of a chaos. Indeed, Christ created even the unseen spiritual world. Everything seen and unseen. Verse 17 clearly states, all things were created through him and for him, or toward him. In other words, absent Christ, nothing would exist. It would simply be some sort of void of chaos. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now Paul uses a strange phrase for us here. He refers to thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Here he's commenting not only on Christ being the true King of Kings, but also that He is God demolishing the falsehoods that had crept into the church through the Gnostics, that Jesus was somehow less than God, either a created being or a lesser God, like like ranks of angels. Verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. Here Paul has made a third argument for Christ's supremacy. He's the head of the body, that is the very source of the church. He's the sovereign of the church. He's the source of the world and everything in it and of the church's life and soul. Christ leads and and governs the church. Again, Curtis Vaughn comments that to be head of the church implies three critical unifying points. And listen through, as I did uh, studying this, listen through this, if you will, through the lens of what we know in the here and now. Listen through it through the lens of Bay Presbyterian Church and the precious fellowship we enjoy together, which you've got to know, and I, I wish it were otherwise, but what we have here, brothers and sisters, is unusual. It is unusual in its depth and breadth and the love and the lack of any significant divisions here. So what are those three points? The church is a living organism composed of members, remember Bay, vitally joined to one another. I see that in what Pastor John was just saying about the beautiful ministries that happen. Second, the church is the means, the hands and feet by which Christ carries out His purposes and performs His work. And thirdly, the union a Presbyterian, the union that exists between Christ and His church and His people is real and it's intimate. I see you pray with one another. I see you cry with one another. That is what He's getting at. It's real and it's intimate. It has depth. Verse 18, He is, notice the present tense, He is the beginning, meaning that he's the origin, source, and sustainer of the life of the church, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything 
he might be preeminent. And here we get at the idea that Jesus is the only, the first to arise from the dead into true resurrection life. The great truth then is that because he now possesses a resurrection life, the redeemed will now share in eternal resurrected life by virtue of the, our union with Christ. I can, I can never say union with Christ without thinking of Sinclair Ferguson. Right, Rachel? He founded it into our head. This does indeed make him preeminent in all things. He is alone supreme among all. Listen to how Paul put it in, in Romans 1.4. Jesus, he said, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So now Paul has told us the truth about four important criteria that make Christ supreme. Paul has, has argued, if you will, almost like a barrister in front of a court, a jury, why Christ is supreme overall. Number one, He's told us he is the very image of God. Number two, he is Lord over all creation, visible and invisible. Number three, is he is the head, the source, if you will, of the church. And number four, he is preeminent in everything. Do you see the importance of this cosmic truth? Jesus isn't just a man like you and me. Rather, he is the very image of God who rules over and coheres everything, preeminent in everything, without exception. This is who we worship. This is the truth. This is our hope. Verse 19. For in Him, all, again, notice the absolute nature of the word all, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The meaning here is that the entirety of divine grace dwells within Christ. And therefore, there's nothing which God the Father possesses that the Son does not also possess. He is not lesser than God the Father. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, equal in substance, power, and glory. Paul asserts Jesus is the sole mediator between God and man, the only one. We need look nowhere else to understand God the Father, because Jesus is the revelation of God's character. And we need look nowhere else for salvation. That's a radical thing to say. In this culture, it turns out our peace, our hope, our comfort, our salvation is not found in wealth. It is not found in the beauty of our home, the accomplishments of our kids. It is not found in drugs and alcohol and sex. It's found in one place and one place only. And that will never change, praise God. Verse 20, and through him, that is Christ, to reconcile to himself all, again that comprehensive word, Paul's put it there deliberately, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
This is a statement of all things. Anything and everything in God's universe. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. You ever get the question, well, why would God sacrifice his son? Because it was the only way. It was the only way to have a people to himself who praise and glorify him and who are on mission, who understand scripture, who can answer the question, did God really say? Who can go to the ends of the earth, even if it's just across the street there, to teach and preach and baptize? This, this word reconcile, by the way, is an important word. It means to move from a state of enmity to one of friendship and agreement. And this requires that men submit to Christ's lordship and act in harmony with God. So Paul's statement, and please don't misinterpret this, is not to be interpreted as supporting some kind of universalism. That is not what Paul is saying. He is not saying the idea that, that Christ will reconcile all men to himself in a saving relationship. Quite the opposite. He's saying that upon condition of reconciliation with Christ through the blood of his cross, that will lead to peace. That is to salvation. It also means that the, the chaos and the disorder that man's sin is brought into creation will be done away with and harmony will be restored through the cross of Christ. That's why we need the cross of Christ. And that is an offensive message to the culture. Pastor John mentioned St. Mary's Hospital. In every room in St. Mary's Hospital, there is a cross. And patients will say sometimes that they find the cross offensive. And I say, Amen. Amen. Because that cross is the truth that divides truth from untruth. Reality from unreality. And it gives me what? A window to talk to them about what truth really is. And when people are laying in a hospital bed, all the things they sought comfort in disappear. And they're open to hearing the word of God. It's also a statement that eventually everything will be subdued to God's will and will serve his and his alone purpose. Romans 8.20, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We have that to look forward. And lastly, it's a statement of God's grace. Christ will do everything. We don't work. I know you hear that from this pulpit, praise God, all the time. Because we have to press the point home. We don't work to get to heaven. Yes, we respond to His grace in our life through faith. But God the Father redeems us through the death of God the Son. Through the blood of the cross. Allowing reconciliation between man and God. Dorothy Sayers, the writer and poet, said this, and it's so beautifully written in one sentence. She said it this way. The cross is the ultimate evidence 
that there is no length the love of God will refuse to go in effecting reconciliation. If I could just memorize that, that's my answer to why the cross. There is no length he will fail to go in redeeming us. Verse 21, Paul is now going to move from the general to the specific and explain just how what we have read so far applies at the personal level, not only to the Colossians, but to us. It is a relevant letter written to us. It's not some dusty letter discovered that, well, interesting history. It's meaningful right now today to us. Verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, the Greek word here literally means we've been transferred to another owner. Meditate on that today. We have been transferred to another owner. And an enemy of God estranged from him, doing evil deeds. And these evil deeds are the result of a mind hostile to God and indicates the distortion of thinking in those who reject God. Romans 1, verse 22, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Paul's emphasizing here that that this man you see, Christ, had a literal and fleshly body while yet also being God. A fact that Colossian heretics had denied and that it was through his death, his literal death, that they were reconciled. Why? In order to present you, what is Paul right there? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Imagine that. You know your lives. You know the secret things of your life. You know the distorted thinking. You know, I know, my suppression of the truth, my rebellion. And yet I will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach through the death and resurrection of Christ's body. We will be holy without blemish. We will be free. From accusation. It does not mean to say that we must be holy and without blame, but that's impossible with man. And verse 23 if indeed you continue in the faith, that is, continue to rely on Christ and Christ alone for salvation, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. And this is, this is getting at the important issue of this uh, phrase you've heard, the perseverance of the saints. It's the idea that the saints are those who persevere in Christ as enabled by the Holy Spirit. The theologian Bruce comments this, continuance is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality. This has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, Paul is not being ominous here. He's not warning so much as stating the truthful reality that salvation is found alone in the sufferings of Christ and the faith it engenders in the believer. So I finished talking about that passage. We now have a correct theology. But a correct theology implies the necessity of living it out. And I would say of doxology. Praise God. 
that Paul told the truth. Praise God that it is the absolute truth. And praise God that it's our faith. And so we could ask, like Francis Schaeffer, how now shall we live knowing this truth? Paul answers a part of this question earlier in chapter 1, verses 13. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What a savior. This is an absolute promise to all believers that they will be delivered and liberated out of bondage and slavery to sin and to Satan and will dwell eternally with God. This is, this is rescue of the highest order from the domain of darkness to literally the kingdom of light. Do you realize the impact of, of this reality? Of this singular and overpowering truth that Jesus is the very image of God? That we don't have to live as in Genesis 28, days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. We see. We see now. We see Christ and the benefits of union with Christ. That when the Holy Spirit generates us and we truly understand who Jesus is, we will stand speechless, holding His holy word in our hands, trembling, shocked at our years of rejection of the truth power of God's very word about who Christ is. Has that happened to you? It's happened to me. And it happens over and over again. I find myself reading my Bible and I'm thinking, am I getting older? And it's not trembling at the truth of what's written here and the power of that. This truth changes everything in my mind. Jesus Christ becomes the axis mundus that is the center around which the world and everything in it that exists spins. It means that unreasonable peace and happiness becomes reasonable. We have a page full and more of people to pray for. I'm so glad that that appears in our bulletin every day. Lord's day. It means that all the tears, all the pain, all the illnesses, all of the worries, even death that will come for each of us by the roots of the fall, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If everything Scripture tells us about Jesus the Christ is true, and I believe with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and with all my strength that it is, then nothing that happens here that so concerns and overwhelms us can ever truly, really have any detrimental effect on us. Hold tight to that truth, brother and sister. And this is important because I don't think you can think clearly about life until we learn to think spiritually. 
through the knowledge of the absolute sovereignty of Christ. So how should we be changed by this reality? And we'll wrap up. Number one, I think, to repent over our sometimes casual attitude about Jesus and Scripture and have any thoughts that He alone is not sufficient for our salvation. He is preeminent and supremely powerful and sovereign. He alone is enough. Number two, to pray, read, study, meditate over God's Word, particularly this passage. We simply must know Scripture and the truth. Number three, mold our lives around the truth and reality of Scripture and who Christ is rather than the deception and the amusement park of lies in our culture. I'm going to end with a poem and then prayer. Joseph Plunkett was an Irish poet and he put it so beautifully as poets often do in terms of seeing Christ in the way he should be seen which is to say in everything in our world. I see his blood upon the rose and I the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the sky. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice and carven by his power rocks his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown of thorns is twined with every, was twinned with every thorn. His cross is every tree. Truly, Christ is everything and is in everything. May we understand the truth as Paul has told us, inspired by God. Now, Lord, forgive us for not knowing your word more fully. Grant us a hunger for you and your word. Grant that your peace would go with each and every brother and sister here, wherever you may send us. Guide us, Lord, through the wilderness, the lies and rejection of our culture. Protect us through the storms and bring us, Lord, in your good timing, safely home, rejoicing in your goodness to us, that we may one day see you face to face and fall to our knees crying out, My Lord and my God, in your powerful name we pray. Amen. And in response to that wonderfully preached word, let's proclaim the Lord's praises as we proclaim how deep the Father's love for us. Let's sing together.
Sisters, may God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. Go now, each of you into your mission field, remembering always that we live Koran Deo before the face of the living God. Amen. <laughs>